welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan and in this episode I'll be exploring the implications of the UK government's budget. My guests and I will be discussing what the Chancellor's announcement on the 3rd of March means for people who use social work and social care services, people who receive support from the social security system and the wider implications for society. I'm joined today by Carl Hanscombe, Senior Economist with the Resolution Foundation, Louise Woodruff, Policy and Partnerships Manager at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation and Kerry Prince, Baswa's Public and Political Affairs Lead. Carl, Louise and Kerry, how are you all doing? Uh, good, thanks. Uh, still in Middlesbrough, um, but hopefully heading back to London next week. Uh, it's great to be here for a second podcast running. Yes, and if anyone was wondering, that's Kerry. Um, l- yes, Louise, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. I'm here in York, where JRF are based. And uh, yeah, looking forward to a really good discussion. Great. You're very welcome, Louise. And Carl? Hi, Andy. Um, doing well, thank you. I managed to even get a few hours of sleep last night, which is a, a good feat after a budget. Good man, good man. And Kerry, sorry, it's lovely to have you back. I should have said. Always a joy to have you back. Oh, I'm sure, um, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, and yes, Carl mentioned that he, uh, Carl, you were up late last night crunching numbers and making sense of the announcement, which is um, what we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. So thank you very much for making that sacrifice. Um, So just if anyone's not sure, the Joseph Rowntree Foundation is an independent social change organisation working to solve UK poverty. And the Resolution Foundation is an independent think tank focused on improving the living standards of those on low to middle incomes. So we're speaking just after 2pm on Thursday the 4th of March. The budget was announced yesterday um, and we're going to reflect on what it means for everybody over the next 12 months. So, um, Louise, you mentioned you're in York. Uh, I'm in Belfast. Carl, where are you at the moment? I'm in London, not even uh, probably 10 miles away from Rishi Sunak stood up yesterday and was spilling out all his numbers. Okay, at the centre of the action. Kerry, where are you? Uh, Middlesbrough. Okay, great, great. Okay, so that's quite a geographical disbursement. Um, And we don't normally have that much variation, so that's great. Um, Okay, so listen, I'll shortly ask Kerry to run through what Baswa was hoping to see included in the budget. And we can look through the various points to see what exactly has been delivered. But first of all, it would be great, Louise and Carl, if you could take us through what you consider the most significant aspects of the announcement. Louise, could you please kick us off by explaining from the Joseph Rowntree Foundation's perspective just what the budget will mean for people in poverty or at risk of poverty? Okay, so we set five tests, so the choices that the Chancellor had to make to deliver for people in poverty. And our analysis shows that this budget did not pass those tests. So more people will be pulled into poverty because of the decisions that have been made. And if I just quickly go through those, so the first thing is um, the lifeline, the the additional £20 uplift has provided for low-income families and families in poverty will come to the end uh, in September and has not been extended. And we know that that will pull 
um, an additional 500,000 people into poverty, including 200,000 children. Um, secondly, while it's great that we've seen the furlough scheme extended beyond the end of the proposed lockdown, um, there is a weakening in the kind of policy um, uh, because employers will need to increase their contributions. So we need to make sure that that doesn't um, push more people uh, into unemployment. Um, but more importantly, we, we really didn't see from this budget a big announcement on employment support and skills um, in addition to what had already been pre-announced. And so there's a real gap there. Um, thirdly, this is not a budget that supports renters and the announcements on housing will not support the 700,000 people who are already in rent arrears. Um, and fourthly, this, this budget really relies on a bit of a gamble that um, business investment and consumer spending will really lead the recovery. And for those areas of the country where people have not saved during this lockdown or very, you know, smaller proportion of people locally have been able to do those savings. Debt has increased, people have moved into debt. To try to rely on that as a way of driving recovery seems really risky and is likely to not uh, support a kind of levelling up agenda. And so lastly, we, we wanted to see a budget that um, delivered on good jobs and had that real investment in people and skills uh, to make a difference uh, to all of those families in already in poverty or at risk of poverty. And it really doesn't deliver on that. So Louise, marks out of 10, what would you give it? Marks out of 10? A three. <laughs> a three, a three. It, it failed your five tests. That's, that's, that's the basic the message. Yeah. There's some things in there that, may, you know, that... that um, <sighs> Will you know, around business investment potentially that can stimulate the economy? But um, so there, was, there were some announcements that we can welcome. There was a, a really good announcement, for example, on supporting uh, small businesses and really kind of improving um, management skills in small business, which we know is a real problem in the UK and could um, you know help boost productivity. So there are some you know there's some. Uh, a set of announcements that could make a difference to people in poverty. But actually, if you look at that sort of core set of things, that we, those levers that affect people's incomes, um, low-income low households, then we, we didn't see the, the delivery we needed to see to kind of end that perfect storm uh, that we're going to see, particularly at the end of September. Thanks, Louise. Um, and, and Carl, I mentioned um, in the introduction that the Resolution Foundation is an independent think tank focused on improving the living standards um, of those on low to middle incomes. So thinking about those groups, can you give us your breakdown of what the budget is going to do? Yeah, of course. Um, first, I'll just echo some of what Louise said. I mean, she's absolutely right. There was very little in this budget about levelling up. And that's, you know, whether by design or you know whether there'll be more to come from this government on that, I I, I doubt we've seen the, the last word in this. Um, but it, it's certainly a big gap. But um, that's not to take away the government did announce around seventy billion pound of extra support. Day. It was widely expected, but that's really just focusing on getting us to the end of this crisis, and that's just extending the jobs support the JRS and as well as the self employment scheme. Which interestingly enough, now the government's now spending similar amounts of money on both self-employment support 
and the job retention scheme for employees, despite there actually being six times more employees than there are self-employed people. There's an interesting balance. Is that, Carl, is that, is that a recognition of the fact that self-employed people didn't receive the same amount of support during um, under furlough, for example, um, over the last 12 months? So they've extended the self-employment scheme to newer self-employed people, but there are still a number of people who are self-employed who do not qualify for the scheme because the one reason is that perhaps more than half their earnings come from another job and by the rules of the scheme, they don't qualify, which is a shame the chance didn't take the opportunity to to expand support for self-employed because there's a number of people who've missed out. Um, I think the, the wider thing is just a targeting problem. It's very difficult for the Chancellor to to find those self-employed people who've genuinely suffered a cut in profits and they have announced that they are going to, so yes, they're going to follow up and try and make sure that only those people who've seen a loss of profits are going to be getting the extra support, but that's quite a difficult thing to do. This has been, you know, this is generally recognised as a good thing to do, continues to get out of this crisis. And the final thing Louise mentioned, which is the £20 a week. And yet it's great that it's been extended to September, but quite bizarrely, that's the point when unemployment's going to be peaking and that's when it's being taken away. It feels like actually of all the measures, that's the one mm-hmm. that should be extended beyond the peak of unemployment, just when the job retention scheme is going to be ending. And we know that if anything, there's going to be that shakeout in the labour market and potentially more people relying on benefits. So, so on that side, good job, you know, the Chancellor's announced enough support to get the economy to the end of this crisis. Not much mentioned on future living standards or, you know, nothing on long-term household support. As Louise mentioned, it's almost all hoping for an investment-led, firm-led recovery. And I think that's quite risky. And there's also some fiscal challenges ahead that the Chancellor's really dodged in this budget. So I'll put it to you then, Carl, marks out of 10. I think it's, it's sort of difficult, isn't it? I think, you know, eight or nine marks out of 10 for effort and, you know, good job on the coronavirus. But I, I think longer term, the economics of it, probably only a five for me. Okay, okay. And now, Kerry, um, Basel had our series of um, asks of the Chancellor prior to the budget being announced. I'd like to go through those now. Could you take us through those? That I know the first one was to extend the Universal Credit 20-point uplift for a tw- further 12 months. Uh, and obviously Carl and Louise have both addressed that point in their opening um, statements. But could you speak to that? Yes, of course. So the nature of being an organisation that focuses on social workers and social work is that um, we will identify the key issues that we believe impact social workers and the people that they work with the most. So obviously, while we're passionate about uh, job creation, um, we limited our six to um, mostly revolving around social social work and social care. So yes, as explained already, the universal credit £20 uplift, um, we wanted that to be extended for a year and it was extended for six months, which when the alternative was a one-off payment made to people at this time, which meant that no future claimants would be able to get it. Uh, this is a win. Um, it's not It's not something the Chancellor had to do and politically probably didn't want to do. Um, but I think this is definitely a win for the sector, for the dozens of organisations who are calling on him to extend for 12 months. I think six months is better than a one-off payment. And um, 
and I'm sure that the pressure will be kept on to, to keep that going um, because we don't know what will happen in, in six months time. In terms of the, the 20 pound uplift, if we could just explore that mm-hmm. a little bit more. I mean, Carl had mentioned, you know, the 20 pound uplift is going to be removed at the same time as the furlough scheme ends. Um, and I know the Resolution Foundation have, have said that that's, that's going to take the benefit, basic level of benefits back to levels not seen since the early 1990s at the time, at the same time that unemployment is going to peak. It's, it seems to be rather short-sighted or at least um, a temporary fix really kicking the can down the road. I mean, what realistically is going to change in six months that's going to make the, the economic outlook for people that are on universal credit so much rosier that the £20 uplift can then be taken away? So... If I, if I were the Chancellor, I would be hoping and praying that people spending their money or people who can afford to spend their money um, over the summer months will boost the economy, will create jobs. Um, and that, mean that, com- that means come September, there'll be a better financial outlook. Um, but I think it was the um, IFS this morning, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, that said that the Chancellor's plan, um, unless he's willing to inflict some pain, is unreasonable. Um, and unachievable rather than reasonable. Um, so that's something to keep an eye on. So I think I think the Chancellor is gambling and he is hoping that the economic outlook will be better come September so he can say, oh, well, we're, the, the way out of poverty is is employment um, and the creation of jobs. Look how many jobs have been created in the last six months because of what we've put into supporting businesses. Um, and he'll try and use that to negate the need to to retain the £20 uplift. But there will be a lot of pressure because I'm I'm not optimistic. I know the Chancellor is, but I'm not. Um, I don't think it will be a quick fix. The virus will still mm. be here in the summer. It, it, of course, will likely be nowhere near what it is now. But I'll be surprised if we're at zero infections. Um, and it, people will still be cautious. There will still be the um, the impact of, of long COVID as well as the economic impact on people's health um, who may not be able to work and will need some some support. So I think it's a gamble by Rishi Sunak and I wouldn't be convinced at this point that it's going to pay off. Well, I do look forward to the day when you are Chancellor Kerry. <laughs> well. Yes, I really do. You mentioned the Chancellor gambling in relation uh, to the issue of job creation. I, I know there was a, an uplift as well in the, the level of the minimum wage, but that in itself isn't going to be enough to lift people out of poverty. No. Louise, what do you make of that? I mean, any increase in the minimum wage should be welcomed and it's good that the government have stuck to their kind of manifesto commitment of, of trying to um, increase that year and year. Um, but our analysis shows that does not make up for the um, issues that we see in the universal credit system or legacy benefits. So um, it's not an answer to the removal of the lifeline. Um, it's something we should expect, actually, in terms of just providing decent work as a society. Um, it needs to keep going uh, to ref- to reflect more the cost of living. And actually, you know, what we'd really like to see is employers paying a real living wage based on um, what the cost of living is. Thanks, Louise. Thank you very much for, for sharing that. Um, Kerry, the second point that Basel had in its list of asks, um, further measures to tackle child and family poverty, especially food poverty. Um, what are your reflections on how the, the budget's going to affect that? So one of the key issues that has been very much in um, in the news over the last year, along with the pandemic, is is free school meals um, and and how the government have been adequately supporting children um, whose family are in 
relative poverty and um, and can't afford to fund meals for lunch, especially if they have more than one child. And so what we wanted to see was a recognition of this, because a lot of what the Chancellor talks about in the budget comes down to what, what the government recognises to be priorities and the significant absence of um, ways to tackle child and family poverty was uh, was a concern. So yes, there's the extension of universal credit for six months, but what else realistically was there? The Conservatives will continue to say that employment is the best way out of, out of poverty. And whilst I don't in principle agree with that, we have to recognise that we're in the middle of, of a pandemic and on the brink of a further economic crisis and that the jobs simply aren't there. And Louise, I'm just going to come back actually just to, to the previous point because there's an issue which has, has come back to me. In relation to the, the ending the 20-point uplift, um, JRF have said that ending the uplift is going to disproportionately affect families where someone is disabled or families from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. That's a significant finding of your analysis. Absolutely. So we see that around half of those families that are going to be losing out um, have a disabled person in the family and around a fifth of families impacted will be from BAME communities. So this is not um, the burden of actually uh, reducing the lifeline that the uh, Chancellor announced last year is disproportionately um, falling on vulnerable families. And I think we need to except that that has been a choice in the kind of policy decisions that have been made in this budget. And then just coming back to Kerry's point, in terms of the government taking further measures to tackle child and family poverty, if the government has done this six-month extension, gambling on a, on a future recovery based on job creation um, and investment, what else needs to happen now? What, what else should have happened in the short term to have helped families that are currently in poverty? We know that you've said that the removal of the 20-pound uplift will push a further 500,000 families into poverty, and that is a stark finding, but that's a further 500,000 families. What about the, the, the millions of families that are already in poverty? What should have been done to serve their needs? So we have a number of structural causes of poverty around housing, our social security system and work that doesn't deliver for people. And so actually, if you look at the what was happening before this crisis, we saw a large number of people who were working and were also in poverty. Um, we also saw a a benefit system where benefits for um, working age adults and families have been frozen. So it was not providing the safety net that we should expect as a society. And we also saw um, housing policy that was not delivering the additional um, good quality social homes for people on low incomes. So this crisis caused by what is a, you know, obviously a health crisis has been overlaid on the a pre-existing kind of policy environment um, for people in poverty. And so it's kind of compounding that. And when what we really need to see is a, kind of that step change to address those underlying issues that drive um, poverty in the UK. And it was a budget for homeowners. It wasn't a budget for renters. You mentioned issues around social housing provision, Louise. Um, mm -hmm. Nothing was said in relation to people that are, um, I think it was 700,000 families that uh, JRF said are, are currently in rent, in rent arrears. Is that right? Yes. So we've got those households that are already in arrears. We also have um, to around, you know, over 2 million people are worried about actually paying their rent. And so this 
the budget really did focus on home ownership. And you just really need to think about the gap between somebody who can, can't even pay their existing rent and the kind of initiatives we're seeing in terms of those low cost mortgages. How are people going to get from there to there in terms of those big, large number of people who are renting and particularly in the private sector? So it really didn't deliver for um, those renters. Also, we're seeing um, the local housing allowance was uh, frozen in the announcement in the autumn. And so actually that's going down in real terms because the cost of housing uh, is going up. And there is a real gap between the housing allowance and what people's housing costs are. So new data from the DWP shows that more than half of renters who claim universal credit face a gap between their rent and the local housing allowance already. Um, so this is only going to grow since that announcement uh, that the local housing allowance has been frozen. So this really isn't a budget that is delivering for that group of renters. Thanks. And I don't think that's something that's been well covered in the media. So thanks very much for flagging that up. Mm-hmm. Um, Kerry, Baz was third point. So Basel's third point was no return to austerity and end low pay. So it was, what was it, 2019, was it, when um, austerity was de- was declared over? Um, and I'm not sure that anyone who felt the true effects of austerity would, would argue that that is true. Um, and so we wanted to see um, no 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 move that would that would reinstate austerity still being still being in in play um but with the i'm no economist but i will talk about practicalities but with the um uh, freezing of the personal allowance i worry that this is all lower pay this is lower pay in all but name um because that would then make people on lower pays be paying money in tax that they wouldn't otherwise pay um, which is which is less money in their pocket. And I'm sure Carl has a much better uh, reading of that than I do. Carl, what do you think? So uh, increasing, uh, freezing even the personal tax allowance was, uh, we actually went quite progressive because it, it affects people higher up the earning institution more. So you think someone who's, who's earning over 50,000 and is paying 40%, every pound their personal allowance doesn't go up. That means extra 40 pence in tax at paying. So, so in terms of ways of raising taxes and you know, freezing the personal allowance isn't necessarily the worst way of doing it. Um, but like you said, we, we do have to reflect what has just happened. So immediately before this crisis, we'd gone through a decade of austerity, uh, a decade of terrible earnings growth, you know, sort of average earnings, and you know, sprinkled in there as we talked about already, is the increase in the national living wage, which, you know, whilst warmly welcome, actually is you know, a lot of people in low-income families who have been earning just above that and therefore haven't really felt the benefits of the increased national living wage. This term, fiscal drag, this is what this is uh, relates to the increase in the personal uh, tax allowance, isn't that right? It's not something that was covered in my A-level economics, Carl, but this is something <laughs> no. I've been learning about in the last 24 hours. Um the, the only issue in relation to that, um, so I, I'd read that one because of the fiscal drag, 1.3 million more people um, are going to be paying income tax, um, but that's going to be people at the bottom of the income scale. 
um, in terms of how that's going to affect. So you're going to say that more money be raised by people that are um, at the higher end of the scale, but it will eventually drag more people into paying income tax. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. So it is, you know, we have a progressive income tax system. So it's the difference between someone, those 1.2 million being dragged into paying income tax and going from paying zero pounds in income tax over the year. And the effect of this will be to pay paying something around up to £300 extra in income tax over the year. But the important thing our findings show is that people in the, the top quintiles, so the top of the income distribution, will be paying eight times more in income tax as a result of this freeze, the personal allowance and the higher rate threshold. So they'll be paying eight times more in tax by the end of the parliament than someone at the bottom of the income distribution. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, in relation to the point that Kerry made about uh, no return to austerity, I mean, reading the Resolution Foundation's analysis, you've highlighted that public services are going to be under pressure. And you note that coming on top of a £12 billion cut in the autumn spending review, it's going to mean that day-to-day public service spending for unprotected departments, and perhaps you can explain that a little bit. And that includes local government. Um, that spending is going to fall by 2.6 billion next year, 2022-23. Which, if there's an impact on local government spending, that is potentially going to have an impact in terms of uh, spending on social uh, work services. So, in the spending review last year, the Chancellor set out a, just a one-year spending review, which is you know, perhaps a little bit unusual, but maybe we can forgive him because it was in the middle of a pandemic. And what that means is that they, they've not actually set out the spending review plans on a department-by-department department basis going forwards. Instead, what they've done is they've said there's this envelope of money that they'll, they'll be using to spend. And this is on all sorts of things like defence, transport, as well as health and education, and, as you mentioned, local councils. And the problem we've got is that the Chancellor has earmarked, or the money he's earmarked that, it's actually taken a, a £4 billion reduction in this budget. And if we look over a longer period, by 24-25, so the end of the parliament, unprotected departments, so that's departments unlike not health and not defence, for example, will have seen a 25% cut in their funding overall since 2009-2010. So far from being the end of austerity, it feels like austerity is going to continue. Yes, I mean, that's pretty stark, um, just the, the ongoing impacts. Just, just out of interest, from, from my interest, um, protected departments, you mentioned health, you mentioned defence. Are there other d- protected departments? So the protected departments are the NHS, schools and overseas development assistance. And because of the increases that the Chancellor's announced for those already, that means that the unprotected departments will effectively have to take a £2.6 billion cut in the next year. Just coming on from what Carl was uh, discussing there in terms of cuts to budgets, uh, to unprotected departments' budgets, Baswell had asked as our fourth point um, for immediate investment in social work services for adults, children and families. Now, that wasn't announced in the budget, but are we actually looking at a situation where we could be heading backwards? Uh, Probably. Um, So whilst the government are obligated to um, provide a number of statutory services, um, what we wanted to see um, was investment in, in social work and a recognition that it's better to spend 50p now on preventative measures than it is to spend a pound later on um, tackling a crisis that has potentially gone out of control. Um, and also this isn't just about money, it's about people. It is far better, more human, more moral to 
support people from getting to crisis point than by only sensing, only deciding we have an obligation to act when they reach crisis point. A good example of this, I suppose, would be mental health. Um, should we be, as a country, local authorities, should we be providing um, much better early intervention, uh, more, more perhaps uh, more widespread and recognised mental illness such as depression, anxiety, um, before it reaches a point where someone needs um, direct intervention and perhaps being taken away, um, removed from a situation because they need specific 24-7 support. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't seem like this government recognises that, that it's not only is it fiscally sensible to do so, but that it's also morally right. Indeed. And, and again, similar, the, the next point, which was um, calling for funding to progress adult social care reform and sustainability in England. Um, and that, the previous point was for England as well, because obviously with the devolution of responsibility for health and social care to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, any decisions made in the budget in relation to health and social care will only be for England. Um but yeah, the, the the budget was silent on on social care. I, I mean, I, I haven't read all 170 pages, but I have done keyword searches, and I didn't find anything. No, so if you control F um, social care in, in in the document, I think it comes up five times. Once mentioning the department, once mentioning um, something else, and not, nothing of of importance, and then three times in tables. So um, considering we are still in the midst of a pandemic, um, it is shocking that. That wasn't acknowledged because it's not just the support um, for people now um, because of lockdown, but also it's the long term impact of what long COVID and the effects of economic and, and health um, security will will mean for people. Um, and there was no mention of, of adult social care reform. And I think I read something this morning where it's uh, the reason for this is because um, the government want to pursue a cross party approach in reforming adult social care, which led to Labour responding, saying, then, what, then why hasn't the Chancellor approached us? And they've been pushing this for months, according to the Labour Party. Um, and the government haven't been very forthcoming. So um, how are they how are they pushing across a cross party approach um, when Labour Party haven't even heard from them? Yes, I read a quote from, from Keir Starmer when he was saying that the budget did nothing to fix the NHS and social care or reduce inequality or create more affordable homes, which are all points that we've covered so far. Um, well, that's not a particularly positive um, picture then in relation to the, that, because that is a massive issue. Social care um, is in crisis and the crisis is only going to get worse. Louise, JRF have uh, a clear interest as well in social care, um, given mm. the organisation's remit. Uh, have you any thoughts on that point? Absolutely. So as a, a social care provider, we're a living wage um, employer. And we've worked closely with the Living Wage Foundation over many years on sort of promoting a real living wage for employers um, across the UK. We see very little payment of the real living wage within social care. And the discussion yesterday certainly focused um, away from social care and a real misunderstanding that many people who are working in social care settings um, work in the private sector or in the independent sector. They don't work in the NHS um, because of our commissioned out model. And so even the kinds of pay um, progress that we see within the NHS are not reflected within um, the social care sector. So I, we are concerned about you know, the many um, social care workers who are 
uh, doing what is a very challenging job during a pan- global pandemic, but are still not seeing um, you know, good pay, good progression, good quality work that can support um, both their well-being and their families as well. Um, and again, you're right, we, this social care is again being you know, kicked down the road and we need to see something in in this parliament on social care um and if my my point would be if not now now when because you know this is the time where we've had no never had so much focus particularly on adult social care and the 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 issues that the pandemic has um raised um you know both the clap for carers the sort of the whole set of things that are happening within residential and also kind of supported um, independent living so this is the time to actually take you know take it forward and make a difference because it's going to affect so many families um, uh, as we go forward and this is that I would like us to see us do something much more progressive on social care both for workers and but also for the quality of care as well. I'm going to push a bit further Louise so I, I earlier elevated Kerry to the Chancellor of the Exchequer well I, I hope that she would but you elevated I'm going to elevate you right now to Secretary <laughs> of State for Health and Social Care what would you do in your first six months to address the social care crisis? So what we have to do is find a sustainable funding model for social care and that will actually raise lots of it does raise a nearly interesting challenge because of the cost of social care and the additional costs we need to put in to really um, make it a good quality system um, where both workers have a, a, a decent wage and um, residents and um, and people in receipt of that care have really good quality care across the board and so that is going to involve additional funding and we need to find a way as well within those first six months of trying to push down additional funding to frontline workers and there are ways in which you can change the way that you can commission care even within our current system to actually make sure that the um, packages of care that local councils are providing for example include things like the living wage and so the living wage foundation have worked with um, some local authorities across the uk to look at how you can do that and we'll be um releasing a toolkit actually later this year now i don't have kerry's encyclopedic pol- political knowledge but i'm going to ask you a question kerry and hopefully you know the answer you said that um uh, the chancellor had said they were pursuing a cross-party approach to social care reform Correct me if I'm wrong, was social care reform one of the issues that did for Theresa May uh, as Prime Minister? Didn't she have some quite controversial proposals in terms of funding models? Is that why you think potentially the Chancellor is not wanting to dirty his hands or take all the responsibility for how this is taken forward? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in 2017, during the general election, the, the proposal of what was what was dubbed the dementia tax um, um, was did did real damage to the Conservatives. So it's no secret that I'm, I'm party politically active and, and with that comes knocking on doors. Uh, and and the policy just went down terribly um, with, with, with Labour voters, with Conservative voters. Um, it was not popular at all. Um, and I think that may have burned them a little. And now they're very hesitant because someone has to pay for it. This money isn't going to come from nowhere. And, um, and I... I 
And if you look at the conservative ideology, they're probably less likely to want to want to issue the, the, the big tax increases on corporations that normally a, a Labour proposal would want. You'd also not, if as a Conservative, you wouldn't want to be hitting your key voter base as well, which tends to be older people. Of course, um, um, who, who have the assets. Um, so yes. it's so it's it, quite a challenge and they're probably not going to want to want to rush out any announcements. And this is why um, it's probably going to be, a, well, they say they wanted to be a cross-party approach because then they only take half the blame. Yes. And and so just taking that as one example of a big issue that needs to be funded, Baswell, we've said um, that it's it's vital that when the government does work to restore the country's finances, that the, the, the weight, the burden doesn't fall on the lowest paid and it doesn't fall on future generations. In relation to basically how the government is planning to get the economy back on track, Carl, you have touched on this earlier, but maybe we could come back to it. How um, appropriate do you consider the government's general approach to restoring the, the country's finances post-COVID? So there are two steps, two big steps at least, the government's taken to try and shore up the finances. Uh, and that's on the tax side, quite wisely. And also it's quite wise that the, these riders are penciled in for, for later on in the parliament. He's not doing them today, which... I think most people would agree would be a bit mad. Um, on the one hand, he's increased corporation tax, and you know we've actually almost undone all of the cuts to corporation tax that have been taken in this country over the last fifteen or so years, which is a very big move. And this puts the UK from being sort towards the, the bottom of the middle of OECD countries and corporation tax to it's actually somewhere near the, the top of the middle towards the top end. And you might think, yes, corporation tax, that's fine. It's just big businesses that pay that. But it it is worth remembering that ultimately those big businesses do produce the goods and services that we all use. And so some of that will then, you know, unfortunately feed through into higher prices for us to pay. And in terms of how progressive that is, where does it fall on richer and poorer people? Well, it's it's quite hard to say because we don't know how companies are going to respond, but Broadly say it's going to be kind of flat. On the other hand, the income tax, the freezes we've seen there, as I've talked about already, that is going to be quite progressive. So people towards the top of the income distribution, households earning in excess of, say, £2,500 a month, they'll be paying sort of eight times more, they'll be taking eight times more the hits from this income tax freeze than the lowest income families. So, it's, so we welcome that as a, a progressive measure. I'm going to just take us on to the very last point of Baz with six points and we can wrap up on this one. Um, Kerry, you did touch on this earlier, but it was around increasing ring-fenced funding for preventative community mental health support in England. Now, we know that COVID has had massive impacts. It's the lockdown, the impacts of lockdown have been significant in mental health. The anxiety caused because of COVID has had significant impact on mental health. And I think the one thing which is often overlooked is the the impact that it's had on people who have been who've lost loved ones, who have had relatives and friends die, um, either because of COVID or just during this period and haven't been able to grieve them, haven't been able to have the customary send-off in terms of funeral arrangements. And that has been really significant. We're going to have to have a long-term approach to addressing mental health uh, across the UK um, in recognition of the impacts of COVID. I don't think it's going to be unique to the UK. It's going to be something which basically every country in the world is going to have to consider. We haven't had any funding into um, longer-term mental health um, spend, we, and certainly nothing in terms of preventative funding. That's a, a real disappointment from our point of view as Baswa. Yeah, so so um, from my perspective, this is really um, perhaps one of all the biggest issues that we 
are going to face that um, we're not prepared for. Um, so um, I make no secret of uh, me personally. Um, I, in the past and currently, receive mental health support um, because um, because mental illness, um, and and I worry. I'm I because I have because I have a previous history um I know how to look after myself um and how to stay well and how to try to stay well um but I worry of um the people who for the first time will be going through um a a really tough time in their life and will experience poor mental health because of it um because mental health and mental illness often get conflated but they're not they're not the same thing um and that poor mental health uh, will turn to mental illness because everyone has mental health everyone gets bad mental health some days but um they can get through it and they get by with with good support from friends families loved ones their routine um their hobbies and all that has been taken away we are living an existence that is terribly unhappy right now full of anxiety and fear for what's ahead and people around us dying and our love not seeing our loved ones and having to communi communicate via a screen um and I don't think that for the people in Westminster who have been able to go in and, and see each other although it's only their colleagues uh, they still have that human connection and and perhaps they're not experiencing what the people who have lost their jobs are feeling and, and how they're struggling to get by financially emotionally and uh, mentally and that's before we even get on to talking about how men in particular will struggle to talk about talk about their mental health um, and so from my perspective this is going to be an issue that is only going to get worse people may find that they only realize that, that something is wrong when society gets back to normal and they still don't feel better um, so for me mental health is is the one to watch out for and with nothing being announced um, although there was some announcement about domestic violence which 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 will go a long way and is hugely important I worry that not enough is being done and it will be too late and people will be uh, taking unnecessary drastic final action and and we could be we could be stopping it with some preventative services um but even even crisis as well thanks kerry kerry louise carl thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts on the content of the chancellor's budget i've learned a lot and it's been really really helpful to hear from you all thanks thank you very much bye bye bye, bye.